You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Fabian Nisiesa, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. I, I was more than happy to hit the ground running. The real frustrating part was that hitting the ground running meant that, again, what a surprising coincidence, they timed their departure to give us as little possible time as we could have to to plan and prepare the crossover that was already in the publishing plan. And they <laughs> knew that this crossover was already in the publishing plan. We didn't know what the crossover was going to be yet because we were waiting for them to decide. Jim and Rob and Bob, but Jim and Rob and Bob weren't, or Jim and Rob weren't going to be a part of it. So we had to put together Executioner's Song on a really fast schedule with all the new artists coming on board and me and Scott taking over the books and having to put all this together and Peter David still on X Factor. So, so we put that crossover together uh, pretty damn quick. Uh, I, I, I broke down the entire, I think it was nine part story, 12 part story, I don't remember. What was it? Four titles, yeah, three issues each. So it was a twelve-part story. Um, I I did the breakdown of that whole the whole skeletal spine of that story, and then we had a big meeting with all the writers and 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 the new artists coming on board, and, and we we hashed it all out and put it all together. And, and if you look back on that time, it's kind of amazing because we were monthly publishers. We had to publish monthly. We didn't have the luxury of being able to take three, four months to do a book back then. Yeah. Um, and, and and the luxury that the image guys chose to have for themselves, more power to them was to have three, four months to put out a monthly book. Um, <laughs> we didn't have that luxury. Yeah. So we, we seamlessly transitioned right into that storyline with all the new artists on all the different titles. And we released it on a monthly schedule and everything shipped on time and sold through the roof. So we all, we all breathed a collective sigh of relief. We were going to be fine. We knew we were going to be fine after that. Hello, welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is X-Force, Episode 2B, covering a period of, well, a bunch of different titles. X-Force, X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, and X-Factor from 1990... I guess it's ni- the very end of 1992 and the very beginning of 1993. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. Uh, I am Lars Pearson, formerly of Wizard Magazine and also of Mad Norwegian Press, and I am your co-host for Uncanny X-Men. I'm James Salerno, and I am your X-Force co-host. And I'm Jared Abrahamson, I am your uh, X-Factor host. 
So if you missed the last episode, I encourage you to stop listening to this one right away and go find X Factor episode 2A because that is the first half of this massive crossover that we're right in the middle of right now called Executioner's Song. And uh, we're going to continue dealing with chapters 7 to 12 in this episode here. This is a wild ride, this, this, whole, this whole series, this whole crossover. Can any one of you sum up the crossover, the first six parts, in one sentence? No, it is, it, is, it is an unfathomable <laughs> enigma, um, like you know, trying to translate hieroglyphs without the Rosetta Stone. <laughs> I was going to say a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> okay, there you go. Yep, a case of mistaken identity. Um, anyone want to further expand on that a little bit? An angry man child. <laughs> Ooh, that's good too. <laughs> Lots of trauma created by mommy and daddy issues. Yeah, yeah. Although we don't even know that in the six, the first six parts, we we haven't gotten no, to quite to that part of the story we, yet. We, we don't. But I mean, reading at the time, you had that had to be on your mind. It couldn't have not been on your mind. Right. It hasn't been explicitly stated. And you know what? This is one of my main issues, and we can talk about this at the end here because I don't think they actually explicitly stated at all in this 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 crossover at all. So uh, <laughs> we'll come to that uh, at the end and see see what you guys say about that. You're getting at something that I will be pissing all over when we get to the final chapter. So yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Good. Okay. Perfect. Basically, it boils down to the fact that it appears that Cable has shot Xavier, and that has infected him with a virus, a techno-organic virus, has taken over his body. And meanwhile, Strife has kidnapped Cyclops and Jean Grey in the name of Apocalypse, who seems to be really upset about that. So. So uh, there's a whole lot of things happening here. This episode in particular is going to cover, uh, let's see here, X-Men 15 and 16, X-Force 17 and 18, Uncanny X-Men 296, just that one, I guess, and and X-Factor number 86. And then we can uh, mention the Strife Strike Files at the end if we want to as well. And then after our special guests, Jared and Lars, depart, James, you and I are going to continue talking about the final two chapters that are in this X-Force epic collection, New Warriors number 31 and X-Force number 19. So that's how this episode's going to play out. But I don't think we need any preamble other than that. Let's just dive right into the, the rest of this story, starting with X-Men Executioner's Song Part 7. This is X-Men number 15 called The Camel's Back. And we left off kind of in a, it was a cliffhanger because one of these... A, a, a non-cliffhanger, if we're being honest, but yes. Well, yeah, I mean, a non-cliffhanger, this guy named Reaper, he's, I don't even remember what team, oh, he's part of the Mutant Liberation Front. He's about to kill some of our heroes, but we, of course, know that that's not going to happen, and indeed it doesn't happen. The first half of this book is just page after page of all of the heroes fighting, they're fighting all of the various members of the Mutant Liberation Front, and there's even characters in here that I didn't even realize were on the Mutant Liberation Front. And uh, it's just a, a, big, a big mess. And then you get halfway through here, and then it kind of switches gears, and we get one-page vignettes of all of the, the different storylines that are kind of going on. Cable and Bishop and Wolverine in Canada preparing to body slide to somewhere. Um, there's a one-page with Colossus reeling over the death of his brother, which is kind of out of left field because we haven't really seen him doing that at all. But 
I guess they want to continue that subplot because this is technically his title. He's on one of the core t- uh, members of the, the the Gold Strike Force. He was, yeah, he was on the Gold team. So that that storyline happened in Uncanny. So I, I mean, I it, guess it's kind of weird that it shows up here, but I mean, yeah, if, it you is know, weird. It's brother. I guess you know it does make sense that he's grieving. So. But it doesn't play into this story at all. I found it odd right. because all of the first six chapters of this Colossus isn't grieving. And yeah, like you said, if he's on the Gold Strike Force, then this subplot should be kind of relegated to Uncanny X-Men, not this chapter yeah, here. Yeah, I agree. But um, the, actually the very next storyline in, in X-Men uh, deals with Colossus and the blue team going to Russia to meet up with his sister and stuff. Oh, and, and that's, okay. that's in this title, so I don't know. There you yeah, go, the planting seeds. To yeah. me, it always seemed like um, the blue and gold uh, distinction, that was something that was done for like uh, the Jim Lee side and then the Wills Protasio side. And it seemed like they kind of discarded that very early because like, you know, we're only about a year into that divide, that schism. And then like we're already blurring the lines together. And then, you know, right. in the next few years, it's just it, they kind of throw away with that, you know, altogether without really, you know, ever mentioning it outright. You had your plots that were in, you know, one or the other. But as far as who showed up where, it was, you know, it was anybody's guess. Whoever serviced the story the best. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, this series wraps up when we finally get an encounter with Strife and Cyclops. And it's kind of a weird, awkward scene where Strife force feeds <laughs> Cyclops some, like, baby mush food or something. It's like, <laughs> what the heck is going on here? Uh, Strife is so weird. I really feel like we never get a good solid feel on what his character is supposed to be because sometimes he's stoic and and non-feeling and other times he does weird bizarre things like this and then in you know in the pages of X Factor before this he was used as a a rag doll and like what is going on <laughs> he's just not a well-defined character at this point or well, I don't know if he ever becomes a well-defined character. Okay, well, you're, you're you're jumping ahead a little to what I was going to discuss in the final chapter, but but at this point, it, it probably is relevant to say, 12 issues in this story, and it is never clear what Strife wants. What? Because he, he wants to kind of like psychologically torment his parental figures, okay? But beyond that, what for him is that button-marked win? I honestly have <laughs> no idea, and I don't think the writers do either. And unless you know, as you say, Curtis, he's like all over the map. And unless you know what he's actually trying to do, which is never explained, I don't know how we're supposed to view him. Yeah. So I think one of the big clues to what he wants, even though it's never said, is in the title of this of this story, Executioner's Song, because that that is taken from a book, right? An old a book that was written, um, I don't know, in the 70s, I think. And that story is about a, a convicted murderer who who's released, I guess, after paying his time in jail and is plagued with the guilt of what's happened in his life, that what he's done. And eventually he orchestrates events so that he is executed uh, by firing squad, his choice. And so I kind of think right. that he, Strife is pulling the strings here so that eventually these his parents will just kill him or somebody will kill I, him. I, I, ooh, that's a very generous interpretation. If he's, try, <laughs> if he's trying to achieve death by cop, uh, death by mutant yeah. cop, that's not right. at all clear. 
No, um, but I mean, it's there's hints of it throughout. Like you know, the whole we'll get to the the, the baby hardwired into his mm-hmm. machinery a little bit later, and uh, there are hints that he's trying to force their hands to, to take drastic measures in certain things. Um, th- yeah, that's just my interpretation. Like I said, it's never explicitly stated at all what his issue is with Cyclops and Gene, um, like how they actually well, affected him when he was younger. Well, you can certainly understand his fascination for them because, again, even at this point, the most likely interpretation is that if he he's either a Cable clone or cl- Cable's a clone of him, which means that effectively Cyclops and Jean are his parents or close yeah. enough. I mean, again, this just gets weird because, of course, Cable's mother is a clone of Jean. So here we have a clone of the boy who was born to Cyclops and a clone. But, yeah, no, you under- I totally understand why he'd be, you know, fascinated by them. But again, what the- then? There's a lot of cloning going on here, a lot. Right. I just think yeah. that his 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 hatred for Genus in particular is unjustified because it's a bit strange because Genus Jean is not his mother. Yes, exactly. She's not. Right. In, yeah, yeah. Nor is she Cable's mother. Right. Yeah. Okay, Lars, did you have any other particular comments about this issue? Uh, just two things. One, I do want to offer some, you know, praise for Andy Kubert's art. Um, yes. Uh, there's a lot of people who like like Andy but don't like his brother or vice versa. I like both of them. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's a bunch of action sequences, but I appreciate the art very much. I appreciate his ability to make it work. Um, I find the cover a little confusing, again, because... You know, again, it's meant to be more thematic, I suppose, but ask yourself, what is actually going on on that cover? It looks like Strife is hosing Cyclops and Gene down with custard. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which is very odd. Like I say, I like the art. I like the way the story keeps moving. I will say that it's a problem that the Mutant Liberation Front, I've never felt that their power set was very strong. It's like you look at their abilities, one of them's super strong, one of them's got electricity, the Reaper does I'm not even sure what, but they're all pretty, (laughs) they're all pretty weak T compared to the X-Men. I've always wondered why these guys were any threat to them at all, particularly, because they just don't seem very strong. I think when they were created, they were supposed to be like uh, the opposite for X-Force. Um, so they were like uh, the teenagers, but on the other side of things. I don't think that ever really um, came across well. But yeah, they were there. I, I, from what I kind of interpreted, they were always supposed to be like the other side of the coin. I, I mean, thematically, I understand why they exist, but I just think they should. They're so weak. They should be getting cut down like pigeons. Kind of like how we were talking before about like um, when X Force got smoked pretty easily by like you know the uh, the combined X teams because there's like a you know a structure there like these guys haven't been in the game as long they're just like you know kind of wayward kids or whatever that you know Strife picked up along the way and converted to his cause. I think that it's yeah I mean they just needed something to service the story in this sense something to wipe out a couple like take some of the players off yeah. the board. Uh, to raise the stakes and that's kind of what we get here because this is the issue where like or is that coming up later where like um boom boom has her jaw broken and uh rogue rogue is taken out by somebody and i can't remember it's all becoming a blur now that's this issue yeah 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 because yeah strobe that's right strobe takes out rogue um yeah i think they just needed to show the x-men that they were stretched a little too thin at this point something needed to happen yeah because we're at the midway of the story right we we have to have some sort of 
you know, big obstacle to overcome, I think, maybe. Okay, how about you, James? What are your thoughts here? I think you guys pretty much covered everything. I just had a question because um, I don't know if I missed something, but were Mr. Sinister's nasty boys in this storyline? Uh, well, well, one of them. <laughs> yeah, I know one of them is. I, I just, I didn't know if I missed something because, yeah, in, in this issue, we see um, Slab of the Nasty Boys. And uh, when I was reading it, I was like, did I miss something? Because usually, like, you know, these kind of generic uh, mutant groups, they don't travel alone. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. In the X Factor issue, what whatever one that was, like 78 or something, where the Nasty Boys and the Mutant Liberation Front are both in it together, Slab does go, he, he uh, leaves the Nasty Boys and joins the... Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, so. okay. Yeah, and then um, it's it's revealed here too that he's uh he's a sibling of a uh, Thumbelina of uh, the Mutant Liberation Front, and uh, I just wanted to add um we mentioned how Nicieza likes to do uh, world building with stuff. To me, I kind of like little touches like that because like it would make sense that you know you have these uh various villains out there that uh re- recruit like these low level goons, <laughs> and um <laughs> I, it would probably make sense that they share references like hey I got a brother like you know maybe we can't use him here but like you know does mr sinister need guys or something (laughs) (laughs) kind of like how alex was like he can't join the main x-men team (laughs) so he's got to go over to (laughs) x-factor yeah it's like you think maybe you know they they share references or you know they they, they read the same hiring uh, articles (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's all that's all i really had on this one i just wondered where where he came from how about you jared this issue, Rusty and Skids show up, and I totally forgot that they were bad guys at this point. Right. <laughs> yeah, and it's it just, it felt like it came out of nowhere, but, I mean, not really, because, I mean, it's been a long time since I've read those New Mutants issues where they join the bad guys, but it, it's still like, what, really? <laughs> yeah. I remember them, but... Anyways. I feel like every time X-Force shows up, they have to have a reunion with somebody, one of their past members. And because yeah. uh, we've already seen that with, you know, with Rain and Cannonball. Yeah, Rain and Cannonball. And um, and yeah, this one here, I, I feel like that happens a few more times. And it certainly happens in the last two issues that uh, in this book that we're going to cover, James and I are going to cover after you guys oh, yeah. leave. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Well, having said that, why don't we move over to X-Force number 17. You want to take that, James? Yeah. So we finally have uh, a big uh, kind of boss fight here. Uh, There's a confrontation between uh, Strife and Apocalypse. And uh, Strife has it out for Apocalypse. Um, Apocalypse uh, has been weakened. Um, We know that, you know, he woke up earlier from like a hibernation slumber type deal. um, So he's not at his best. And uh, it's a it's a big fight. Um, it it does feel epic too. Like one thing I sort of liked about this period of X Men, like it was operating without Magneto, so it was trying to do like these big uh, epic supervillain storylines without like kind of falling back on the same tropes. So um, I did appreciate that they were trying to build up uh, some new guys. Um, you know, Apocalypse was already there uh, too, but he was more of like an X Factor guy. Um, there's a callback as uh, Strife is using uh, that apocalypse-shaped uh, dagger uh, from the Cable miniseries that he that he obtained, and uh, I guess Apocalypse is weakened by that weapon. He unmasks uh, Strife, unmasks, and Apocalypse is shocked to see who Strife is. And as we know, Strife and Cable share faces. Uh, Strife wins the fight, but uh, Apocalypse teleports away, which uh, is unusual for Apocalypse because you know it's survival of the fittest. You know, you fight to the death. 
by these actions, uh, Strife actually gains the obedience of Apocalypse's Dark Riders. Um, they're almost like a like a cult that follows Apocalypse around and follows his uh, survival of the fittest mantra. So now they're loyal to Strife because Strife was the fittest. And uh, yeah, so that was a that was a pretty cool fight. Uh, Cable, uh, we go we go off to uh, Cable, Wolverine, and Bishop. Uh, Cable's basically giving them uh, the history of his future. So their future, his history, you know, it gets gets confusing with time. <laughs> yeah, so we look, um, Cable's kind of clearing the air with them. Wolverine and Bishop now are convinced that, you know, Cable didn't shoot Xavier. Uh, the, the question remains, though, why do they have the same face? And then, uh, yeah, X-Force, uh, they're still prisoners at Xavier. Sunspot and Richter, they're prisoners, too, because they're part of X-Force, but they actually don't have any loyalty to Cable. If you remember, they left the New Mutants when Cable took them over because they didn't trust him. And, you know, there were some some more mistaken identity cases there that uh, we, that we can get into uh, elsewhere. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, there's a lot going on here. And then also, uh, let's see, Scott and Jean uh, finally escape. Um, they fool Strife, like, uh, within, like, an illusion with uh, Jean's powers. Um, not sure how that you know how that would work i guess you know he didn't really plan things through uh strife <laughs> and uh and finally uh apocalypse shows up at the x-men mansion their headquarters and he wants to join forces with them uh, because he realizes that this threat is bigger than uh you know just just him just his pride and, and ego or whatever and he needs help and uh, Archangel is enraged over this because if you know the history of those two characters, they do not get along. Yeah, so there's a lot of statement. A lot of a lot of gravitas to this issue. I, I like this one. Okay, Jared, what do you have to say about this one? One thing I I had been thinking earlier that this uh, whole crossover storyline seems uh, a bit overstuffed, you know, with like lots of stuff going on. You don't and, say. <laughs> right, right. But uh, <laughs> rereading this, it occurred to me that I, th- I think this would have like uh, flowed better had Apocalypse not shown up until this, well, I guess it was the, the ending of the previous issue, but but his his role earlier in the, this uh, storyline is completely like just wheel spinning. It doesn't add anything, and this is when he should have first appeared when he becomes important to the story. I feel, and I don't know. But yeah, I mean, he's kind of only in this story to save Xavier. That's really yeah. the only p- point. If they took him out and contrived another way to save Xavier, then that would have given a, maybe the story of more room to breathe. At the very back of this book, there is an article by Fabian Nicieza. There's the introduction to the old Executioner's Song trade paperback. He says, we, we, uh, let me see here, got to find it. We pared down certain aspects of the storyline, further developed some others, but at the heart of the story, the meat of the meetings, as it were, was always going to be the Strife, Cyclops, Jean Grey, and Cable combination. And so he says, what were some of the things which were altered from my original outline? Well, we reduced the Mr. Sinister's role dramatically, sensing that the antagonists in the story had to be Strife and Apocalypse because so many of our characters had so much history with these men specifically, which could be focused on. My original outline also had Magneto returning in the middle of the story, which in retrospect was a desperation, everything but the kitchen sink gambit on my part. Like, yeah, no holy kidding. cow, could, could you imagine if... <laughs> 
if they had played up the Mr. Sinister role and Magneto showed up, it's like it's funny, all of the... I just mentioned how they moved past Magneto. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just wild. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Lars, what do you have to say? Well, there's a couple of things I appreciate here. Greg Capullo is always appreciated. You know, artistically, he's not what he will become, but I, you know, certainly um, appreciate what he's doing here. If nothing else, although I've been critical, the story keeps moving along. I, you know, it, it's a bit like the Da Vinci Code. I'm not sure you should think about it too, too much, but it's a page turner. Um, there, there is, again, as you say, Strife is not being particularly smart here. If there was a way to avoid involving Apocalypse, because the decision to attack and involve Apocalypse is about as sensible as Hitler's decision to attack Russia. It just creates too many opposing forces. Also, again, Strife is from the future and seems to be pissed off at Apocalypse for things he hasn't done yet, which is fine, but what does he think is going to happen here? Surely him killing Apocalypse would represent a significant timeline break to his own history. That doesn't seem like a good idea. So... I'm not sure what he's trying to accomplish here. Well, Apocalypse had poisoned uh, baby Christopher, or whatever his name is, who we are assuming is Strife now, you know, Cyclops' kid. I may have lost track. Wasn't there some reference in there to Strife's upbringing that he's pissed at Apocalypse for that? It is later covered in the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. In a later miniseries, they cover exactly what he's upset about. Um, But, you know, again, Apocalypse features into Strife's upbringing, so I'm not really sure how he expects he could severely injure or kill him at this point. Da Vinci Code, man. Da Vinci Code. <laughs> Marvel, yes. Marvel kind of plays fast and loose with time travel rules. Like one minute they're using a certain rule book, the next they're using a different one. So it's right. like, who knows? But yeah, I get it. James, you mentioned the sword that Apocalypse is stabbed with on page 278. And I had completely forgotten about that sword because that's what kicks off that whole two-issue cable miniseries to begin with is that these artifacts just go missing. Yeah. And I didn't even realize they never wrap up that plot point at all in that miniseries. Strife still has that sword, and this is why he's like he's going to use it here. Yep. So, yeah, some good payoff there. I like that they made that, that reference. I just have one other uh, quick point on this one. Okay. Um, we're in the era of uh, X-Force where, like, every other word is in a gigantic font. Like, a co- <laughs> not just, like, a bigger font of the same version, but, like, these huge, like, colored letters. And um, I only remember this like being an X-Force at the time. I checked who the letterer was, and it was uh, Chris Iliopoulos. And um, he was not doing just X-Force. He did like a ton of work for Marvel. So was this in any other books at this time? Like I just rem- I remember it being like a uniquely X-Force thing, like to make them look like extreme and cool and all that. It's in the next X-Men issue, but that is also lettered by Chris. It's- so Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Maybe he yeah. was just doing it like on the X-Books, but yeah, I don't like I just I don't remember it being anywhere else. And it was like, I don't know, it was just very unique to that time period. They certainly do use it a lot. Yeah, it's like every other word, like when people are yelling at each other, which is like this entire crossover. So. <laughs> Okay, let's move ourselves over to the next one, Uncanny X-Men number 296. Lars, why don't you lead us through this one? Oh, my. Okay. So, 
Basically, it's that Cyclops and Jean are trying to escape from Strife's headquarters. And in the course of this, Strife basically gives them a trolley problem. He gives them a bebe. And he says, you can kill the bebe, or you can try to kill the Dark Riders who are coming at you and will try to murder you. Of course, they don't kill the bebe, and I'll get to that in a bit. And then they try to escape. They breach the wall of the headquarters, and they go out to discover they are on the moon and, and, and therefore have no air to breathe. To be continued. Wow, you, you actually summed that up pretty succinctly. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank, I, I worked in newspapers. It's kind of what you do. Okay. Well, again, look, I apologize. I know that this is in a way a beloved story because of nostalgia reasons and so on, but this might be the most ridiculous and disposable issue of all because, again, Cyclops and Jean are given this trolley problem, but we, the reader, know that they are not going to kill a bebe. They're, they're just not. So for us, there's no mystery in this trolley problem. The old, the old adage about the hero must go forward, the hero can't go forward. You know, like you get like, you know, Superman 2, where he saves the world, but he loses his girlfriend. Here, they're not going to kill a baby. Right. And again, it begs the question, what does Strife exactly want? Because if Cyclops and Jean had killed the baby, then I... It seems like he would have come and gone, ha ha, ha ha, you are the sort of bad people who murder children. Well, what then? Or they just have to beat up his Dark Riders. And what then? I, I think you could cut this whole dilemma out of the 12 issues and it would benefit from not being there because it just, the more you think about it, the more nonsensical it utterly becomes. One last thing before I throw it over to you guys. The cover. If any of you are listening to this and you're not in your car, I encourage you to go look at the cover. It's not the drawing itself, it's just the composition that this might be the most enigmatic, mysterious, and disturbing X-Men cover of all. Um, I, <laughs> I, I previously compared Strife when he stands still to a stripper pole. Now, he appears to be doing an entire stripper routine. He appears to be gyrating on a stage, thrusting his groin at Scott and Jean with his armor, which now has giant nipples. Um, it, <laughs> it depends on who's drawing the, the there's four spots on the cover. It depends on who's drawing the or sorry, the armor as to whether the nipple effect comes across. But here he's got he's got giant nipples. He's thrusting his groin at them. Cyclops is fixated on Strife's groin. He's emitting some sort of optic energy um, that, you know, I believe I'm right in saying that in um, anime, nosebleeds are used to denote erotic desire. And this might be the mutant equivalent of a nosebleed. Um, Strife, <laughs> Strife is doing a stripper routine. He appears to have also given birth to a baby that, Cyclo <laughs> that Cyclops that Cyclops has both caught and looks like he's about to punch. Um, meanwhile, Jean has just fainted dead from the sheer salaciousness of all of this, and she looks like she needs the smelling salts. Gentlemen, have I exaggerated in any possible way about this? Well, <laughs> maybe a little bit. Oh, the, it's it's a nice picture that you've painted there for sure. Okay. Um, the thing that bugs me the most about this cover is not the giant nipples nor the gyrating or it's the fact that Cyclops is just a torso. There's no possible way oh, that his nice. top half of this body, because Jean is collapsed on the ground. Mm -hmm. So either Cyclops is sitting cross-legged here, 
or like he's bent backwards the wrong way at his waist in order to be standing upright or or maybe jeans on a table <laughs> they're 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 on the stripper stage and cyclops is <laughs> standing <laughs> standing down below <laughs> I think that's it. I, yes, you're right. She has fallen onto the stage, and he's like in the in in the in the where the chairs he's on go. the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank, thank you. You've explained it all. I, I think okay. it's especially the way that groin that loincloth is front and center. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Well, I've got no more comments on that. How about you guys? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I I have a scorched earth policy. No, please, gentlemen, go ahead. I think probably the uncanny issues are like the weakest of the bunch. Some of that has to do, I think, with the artwork. Uh, Brandon Peterson, um, like we mentioned before, he gets he gets pretty good later on, but he's I think he's just starting out here and he's not that developed yet. Um, I just wanted to add, he really can't draw a baby. <laughs> like, no. Like, you know. Um, but I, I also want to add, I don't think that's a unique problem to him. Nope, a lot, it's not. a lot of comic book artists struggle to draw not just babies but children as well, where they're just like their portions are off and they're, yeah. you know, because when you think of comics, you're like the Michelangelo type, you know, like drawing like uh, you know bigger, uh, you know, smaller heads like on your figures or whatever, instead of like the standard six head tall figure. Yeah, so they're kind of still like in that mode, and like it just, I don't know, it doesn't work when they're trying to draw children. <laughs> Yeah, other than that, not too much for this issue. I like that they're building up Bishop's uh, past a little bit more. You know, he failed in his mission. It's kind of weighing on him. And uh, they kind of hint here, too, that there's uh, multiple Nimrods in his future. I know, like, at this point in the comics, we've only seen the one Nimrod um, from the 80s. And uh, Bishop's future, he's got tons of them. So it must not be fun if you're a mutant. I'll add that I actually liked the fact that Wolverine figured out where Cyclops and Jean is at the end here. He doesn't usually get to play detective like this, but he's the guy that kind of pieced it all together. So I thought that was kind of a nice little change, change of pace. Let's move right over to X-Factor number 86. Jared, why don't you take us through this one? Yeah, X-Factor number 86 titled One of These Days. This issue begins with uh, Wolverine talking to the rest of the X-Men and explaining how Scott and Jean are on the moon and how they figured it out. Cyclops and Jean Grey are on the surface of the moon. Strife makes a air pocket around them so that they can breathe so they don't immediately die. Wolverine, Bishop, and Cable want to go to the moon to rescue him, but Storm's like, no, we have to regroup. Anyways, and then Apocalypse saves Professor X. It ends with uh, Cable, Wolverine, and Bishop going to the moon and meeting some of the Dark Riders to be continued. Yeah. Yeah. Any comments you want to make about this one? Yeah, uh, I think especially the stuff uh, on the surface of the moon is some of the coolest looking stuff in this whole uh, whole storyline, you know, like the silhouettes to the background of the stars and, and all that. I, I think that's, you know, really, mm-hmm. really nice looking. This is on page 326 and 327. And this page also includes that image of strife that's used on the cover of one of the past collections. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think the artwork is really great. I think that uh, it's, it's kind of a breath of fresh air in a sense when you see this stuff because it's it's stylized but it's also a lot more minimalist and we're talking about like you know Jim Lee the Jim Lee era of 
of comics is cram in as much detail and action as you possibly can in every single panel. And it's almost like Jay Lee is the antithesis of that. It's like you look at that that one scene you were talking about with the silhouettes, and it really kind of boils it boils the artwork down to just the the iconography in a sense. Mm-hmm. You know, we get a we get a silhouette with a slit with a little red stripe, and that signifies that this is Cyclops we're talking about. I like it. I like it. I think it's really nice. Yeah, yeah. I also really like the. Uh, I guess it's three panels that are exactly the same of of cable with the the knife wolverine with the cards and bishop just standing staring out the window how they go back to that like three times and then the last (laughs) time it's like i'm bored let's go (laughs) yeah 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 that's a little bit of comedy peter david comedy which we don't get a whole lot in this issue right Lars, do you have any comments about this one? I mean, like a like a, a man dying of thirst. I am constantly drawn to these X Factor issues. Um, I think the artwork is stunning. I think I think it's just a completely different league from the stuff around it. The cover is gorgeous and really. I mean, I mean the way like it's it's kind of deliberately unpleasant with Xavier puking up all that techno virus stuff. I mean, you know, when I got the newest issue, I was not expecting to see Xavier vomiting circuitry all over the place on the cover. Um, And just, yeah, the way Apocalypse and Archangel are presented there is just wonderful. Peter David's dialogue is wonderful. And the the images are so compelling to look at, even if they don't necessarily make sense, because, you know, Cable and Bishop and Wolverine being stuck on the moon, you know, Wolverine asks, well, do you have a deck of cards? And you think, well, they're going to, you know, play cards or something to pass the time. And all those three panels are just, I guess it's just Wolverine staring at his cards. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. which, we just wanted to hold them. Yeah, which is which is fine. I mean, you understand what cable what cable's doing and what Bishop's doing, but Wolverine is just I don't know sitting there staring at cards because otherwise they'd have to talk to each other. It's a nice touch. It's a really nice touch. So <laughs> no, I I think on the whole this was great. In fact, it makes you wish Peter and Jay had been in charge of the whole show. But uh, yeah, really good stuff. How about you, James? A lot of people in this crossover, so I do like that they um, they try to narrow down their uh, moon uh, team here. You know, they give reasons for who's picked to go on the mission, you know, based on prior experience or whatnot. You know, they, they do that next year, too, with uh, the Fatal Attractions crossover. So a nice little uh, nod to continuity there. And, uh, yeah, when Apocalypse uh, takes the virus out of Xavier, of course, like Archangel's highly suspicious of that uh, because, you know, Apocalypse was responsible for his uh, transformation, you know, making him who he is now. And, uh, yes, that's a little uh, character moment for him, you know, kind of letting go of his vengeance for just a second. And uh, Storm definitely plays a a role in that. She's a sane, uh, rational leader in this situation. You know, she's taking, uh, she knows Apocalypse is evil. She knows that. But this is literally, you know, their own chance so it's either this or nothing so she makes the rational decision here uh you know a decision that somebody like archangel wouldn't have made so uh yeah i like that you know that they're not just with so many people in the crossover there's not a lot of just interchangeable ciphers here you know they're making actions based on their on their character and their their past experiences yeah for for myself while i did enjoy this issue especially for the resolution of the xavier story which i'm happy that we're we're not saving, cramming it all into the last issue, all of the the, the wrap-up. Uh, we're going to spread it out over the couple of issues here. But it was this point where I'm like, Strife, I'm so tired of Strife. 
because he's, like we've already said, he's been playing games with Cyclops and Jean without saying anything. He is just, he's just talking in circles. And this whole scene on the surface of the moon, he's trying to say so much, but doesn't say anything at all. And it's like, for crying out loud, it just keeps on going for issue after issue of him saying how upset he is with these guys, but not saying at all why or how it's going to make a difference or anything like that. Well, yeah. And as we later learn, in some ways, Scott and Jean never did anything to him. But again, maybe he doesn't know that. We can be kind of generous. But a question that might expose my ignorance. Uh, maybe I'm, I feel like I missed a detail. So Strife, presumably he could have just shot Xavier dead. And instead of that, he infected Xavier with the Technovirus. Was that ever explained why? Why does he want Xavier ex- infected with the Technovirus? I'm just guessing that because that was used on uh, him as a child. Well, not really him, but you know what I mean, Baby Nathan. And because uh, I, 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 in the X Factor storyline, they had to transport him to the future, you know, where he. Yeah, and he, and yes, and he was infected. So I guess it's just he symmetry. Would have died. Symmetry. He would, yeah, like, I guess Is it so. Anything yeah, beyond he, symmetry? Probably not. Well, <laughs> he never has his motivation. But that's how unless I, it was to, unless it was purposely to draw Apocalypse out. Because he's got a beef with Apocalypse and he wants to face him. Yes. Apocalypse was in hibernation, right, at the beginning of this. Yeah, but I don't know if Strife knows that or right. if uh, if he just wants to, to draw him out into the open. I don't know. Or, but yeah, does Apocalypse... Question. Yeah, I, I mean, if it was there and I just missed it, then I apologize. But uh, I'm not sure it was ever said, oh, I sense the presence of the Technovirus. I must wake up now and deal with it. I, I don't think that's how it's presented. But again... I, I think, again, it, it, either the detail's not there, which is a pretty big plot point because, you know, Xavier's been infected for like 10 issues now. Or if it is there and I've missed it and that's my fault, it perhaps could have been a little more prominent mm, yep. since it is allegedly his plan. Mm. Okay, well, I mean, maybe uh, we'll have to see if our listeners have any insights on that to leave us a message and uh, see if you can clue us in. But let's keep on going here to, to Chapter 11 of Executioner's Song. Uh, this is X-Men number 16. And uh, in this issue, we have a big standoff on the moon. Um, Wolverine, Bishop, and Cyclops are going in guns blazing and uh, just kind of ripping the place apart. And I like their inter... Their inter the uh, Sorry, I love their exchange here while they're fighting. They, they talk so casually while they're fighting, but it's like... A, uh, Bishop doesn't like Wolverine. Be- Wolverine's just kind of guns blazing attitude. He goes in there and uh, doesn't have any strategy and such. Whereas these other two are soldiers and need to have more of a kind of a tactical plan. So I, I appreciated that kind of dialogue while the fight was going on. And uh, and then fantastic moment of the X team and Apocalypse busting in at the last minute when when it looks like the chips are down. Just such a great, a great uh, iconic epic moment there. I could see it played out really well in a movie. Is this where um, Wolverine almost uh, succumbs to his uh, berserker rage and they kind of, they pull his leg there, like make fun of him for it, or was that a different issue? They said something like, uh, oh, here he goes again. He's on his berserker rage and he's like, no, I'm not. Like, as he's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's here. That is this issue. (laughs) I was going to say, you don't... I'm not. Yeah, they, they always have that in the background, but that almost you almost never see it you know like since like the character originally debuted so that was uh yeah it was a a, a, a rare moment where, where wolverine yeah. just cuts loose <laughs> you actually see the blood and like he's slicing this guy's jugular so that guy's definitely finished no question about it <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, I mean, some some really great moments I think in this one. Um, I can you can sense that we're wrapping up some storylines here because they're they are resolving some issues on the moon. They're resolving some issues with with apocalypse. Apocalypse has to face his dark riders again, and yeah, it's all building to the to a big climax. Um, Andy Kubert does another good job. They seem to really like sticking him with the massive battles. I think because. At this point, he's, out of all four of these artists, probably the best equipped to handle these these massive, massive fight scenes. Uh, and he does a good job. His storytelling, his layouts, I think, are quite clear and concise. And we don't, even though there are so many characters, we know where the focus is. And, uh, and, and he does a good job, so I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, Jared, do you have any comments about this one? Yeah, it's a fun, like, climactic <laughs> issue you know big fight i enjoy it how about you lars yeah uh again i i think you're right andy uh handles the big fight scenes and the big splashings really well uh for what he's given to work with you know this is we're back in da vinci code thriller territory here and that it it is basically fighty 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 and yeah you know if, if if that's your jam and that's what you want then sure for what they're trying to achieve they do it as well as they can how about you james on the topic of Kubert, he really was like a, a perfect um follow-up for jim lee because he was he was not too far divorced from that style but um you know he kind of stuck with the book long enough too to give it like his own look uh, so yeah, I, I think he's probably one of my uh, favorite artists from you know this this particular time period here. And um, yeah, other than that, like as far as the issue, I liked how Apocalypse you know runs into his uh, his former henchman there, and you know that they betrayed him, and he's we, we we don't really know what happens here because whatever confrontation they have happens off panel, and Apocalypse is just kind of like you know so be it, survival of the fittest. <laughs> Wow, yeah, I mean, this is the penultimate issue of the story, and there's not a whole lot to say, so we'll just uh, keep on going to the next part, the last part. James, why don't you take us through X-Force number 18? All right, um, so on the topic of Apocalypse, we see that he was left for dead by the Dark Riders, and uh, he runs into uh, Archangel. And, you know, as we mentioned before, there's a lot of history there. And uh, Archangel has the opportunity to kill Apocalypse, and he does not. So this is actually a huge uh, turning point in his character arc because, um, if, you know, if you were following those early X-Factor issues and everything leading up to this, um, Warren Worthington, Archangel, Angel, he was a very brooding, sort of sulking character. And um, this is pretty much the end of that. He kind of goes back to being like his old personality after this. So, you know, he uh, he gets past his uh, his inner demons at this moment. Well, and this is important also because the X-Men, I, I think it was the previous issue, they were wondering if Warren was now again under Apocalypse's control. And like, is he going to succumb to all of this? Is, is he going to kill... Yeah anybody and we see that he still has his humanity in check yep. he still he still retains his own moral code which is yeah, uh, which is important you, it's good that you bring that up because I, I remember that too i think in like those um those early archangel appearances it was suggested that maybe like he didn't control his own wings and uh you know he did decapitate that member of the mutant liberation front before mm -hmm. so it's like did he do that did the wings act on their own or so yeah yeah that, that's definitely playing up on that history there and then um, for the rest of the issue, we have uh, the final battle between Cable and Strife. Uh, it suggested that Strife is um, baby Nathan, um, the son of Cyclops, Scott Summers, and Madeline Pryor, who's a clone of Jean Grey. 
Uh, he was sent to the future, and uh, they're revealing that possibly Cable is the clone. So we know that, you know, both these guys are, you know, they have the same face. Which one's the real one? Um, it's not quite tied up here, but it's uh, implied that Cable is not the real deal. And uh, Strife also views Cable as less than uh, less than a man uh, due to his cybernetic parts. So there's just, he has visceral hatred for his uh his doppelganger here. You know, as the battle continues, we see a return of uh, the Cable uh, Terminator face from those early, uh, <laughs> yeah. those early X-Force issues where he looked like, uh, you know, Arnold from the Terminator with half his face falling off, <laughs> which was never really explained. I think Rob Liefeld just wanted to draw that in those issues, so he did, but we see well, that. Well, hey, reason. it looks cool. Yep. <laughs> in in <laughs> this one, it serves a purpose because we can differentiate between the two Cables as they fight with no shirts on. <laughs> So yeah, then they uh, they force uh, Cyclops to activate like a uh, time travel self destruct uh, doohickey, and that uh, that sends Cable and Strife away. So that's the end the end of them for now and uh we see that cyclops uh so he's faced with the pain of sending his uh his son or his sons you know who knows who's who to the future again you know he he already lost his son once and now you know revealing that you know this this is baby nathan but which one is the real one you know he has to go through this again so it's kind of bittersweet for him and then um in an epilogue mr sinister is uh out in nebraska and you know, Nebraska from Summer's uh, history, that's like the orphanage uh, where he grew up was in Nebraska. And uh, a doctor there opens a file and uh, it appears that there's a virus or something in that file because uh, somebody starts coughing. And uh, yeah, this is uh, the beginning of, uh, they don't really say what it is here, but this is going to be the, uh, the beginning of the legacy virus storyline, Strife's legacy uh, that he that he leaves behind. Oh, I did not know that. So that's pretty cool. If you remember, like in the early uh, 90s, like AIDS was definitely like a huge topic in the news. And they said, you know, this was kind of like a play on that. Like it only targeted uh, mutants and mm, whatnot. Yeah. But that comes much you know, later on. So. James, what did you think of this conclusion? I liked it. They definitely didn't uh, solve the mystery like i guess if you were if you were going into this thinking that we're going to have a definite answer on like who the real uh, nathan was um we don't get that but overall uh i was satisfied that is something that they actually clear up uh, pretty quick like within a year in uh, one of the early issues of uh cables series they, they clear that up and to me, like I, I think there's a, it, it was a satisfying ending. Um, the the good guys win, and uh, there's we're on to the next problem. It appears you know there's there's going to be something else uh, giving them trouble in the future. I also actually really liked this conclusion as well. Even though I've been griping about how things are not clearly defined, I yeah. thought that the the climax of them in this big tower and the fight on the moon, the resolution with uh, with, with with Apocalypse, and just even the buildup as the two guys, like Cable prepares himself for death. I, I really like the pacing of this issue and, and it, it was, I thought it was exciting once the yeah. explosion happens at the end there. It, I, I was satisfied with the, the turnout even though it doesn't answer questions. Yeah. And again, it's, it's bittersweet because, you know, Cyclops throughout the entire history of his character, you know, he, his whole thing, he can't open his eyes. He can't look like a normal person. You know, he's had it so tough and like to make him go through something like that again, I think they, uh, they handle the emotional weight of that pretty well here. Yeah, totally. Jared, do you have any comments about this? I really love the confrontation between Apocalypse and and uh, Archangel. I think that's you know the highlight of the the issue. I mean, it's it's a mm. it's a good fun cinematic 
blowout type of issue and it is fun but i really i really like how archangel just turns and just leaves him apocalypse to you know suffer and die slowly is yeah what his thinking is but yeah and if i'm not mistaken this is apocalypse's swan song for like a long time like i i know that you know age of apocalypse is only a couple years away but that's like a you know a different universe i don't think we see like the mainstream marvel universe uh apocalypse for i want to say not until like onslaught maybe yeah yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's 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 gone for a while. Yeah, yep. wow, <laughs> longer okay. than Magneto was gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And how about you, Lars? I, with fearfulness and trepidation, say that I was not satisfied. But, but let me explain why. Because I don't feel there's any payoff here for these twelve issues. I, I, we're reading the story for twelve issues. What payoff is there? They confront Strife. And they drop him and Cable down a portal. And that's it. And it it, it feels like this was a giant whacking prologue to them maybe giving you some dramatic, it's not like like answers per se, but you got to give me something. And it feels like this is like 12 issues of setup so that down the road they can do something interesting with Strife and Cable. Except, first of all, you got to do that here. You have to have payoff within the major crossover itself. And I don't feel like there is. And in fact, I'm not sure there really ever is because... In preparation for this, I actually read the follow-up Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, and but that's just kind of a giant whacking prequel. That just covers like Cable and then Scani Sun. Scani Sun followed on from that. Mm-hmm. Neither of which deal with you know the tension between these two men today. I I just feel like this final chapter just exposes how you know it's all empty calories. There's a lot of characters and there's a lot of fighting and there's a lot of momentum, but you stop and ask yourself what was this ultimately about? And it doesn't appear to have been about much of any. Thing, except strife going ooga booga booga yeah yeah i see what you're getting at i think the payoff comes in the form of save you know saving the day i mean the the, the two main things are that xavier was dying and gene gray and and scott summers were kidnapped and they were able to solve both of those with a guy that's i mean the, the only issue is that we don't really know what strife's motivation is so yeah like, i well see that's yeah. the problem i, I mean you're yeah. right but saving the day kind of sort of happens in literally every comic story ever i mean i'm exaggerating but you see what i'm saying just for me just we save the day isn't enough of a payoff for a 12 you, you can do that in a kind of, you know, just kind of normal standard story. You know, if you're telling like a two-part or three-part or whatever, you can go, well, we saved the day. And that's okay. But in a major 12-issue crossover thingy, you've got to deliver some bacon. And I just don't feel this does. But that's just me. I mean, I, I, I do see what you're saying. And, you know, and I, I guess I, I do agree it's not entirely satisfying the, the whole mystery uh, like that should have been ended here. The mystery of who's the real Cyclops's son and and all that. But I don't know. To me, this this almost kind of felt like the early '90s uh, version of Inferno, where like in the late '80s, Inferno was the answer to uh, a lot of long, long simmering plots in Claremont's X Men, and you know they kind of set up some new mysteries there as well. So like here we. We do find out that either Cable or Strife is um, is baby Nathan. So we know what happened to Nathan. Like, you know, I, I, I totally get it. We don't find out which one is which, but it does bring us closer 
record a, a closure on, on that particular issue and kind of gives a, a little bit of closure to, to Scott's character. I just think there needed to be more in these 12 issues. If you're going to make us invest in these 12 issues, there needs to be more here. It can't be an Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. It can't be maybe we'll get around to giving you something to chew over. Very little. Ch- I think it's, you know, Curtis, you interviewed um, Chris Claremont uh, about Miss Marvel, and I, I yep. listened to that one. And Chris made the remark that superhero fights have to be more than just um, them punching each other. You have to come out of the fight that the villain has changed or the hero has changed or so on. And after 12 issues, not a lot has changed here. Very, not much. I mean, something, but not much. And I think it's what Claremont was saying comics probably shouldn't be. Just Archangel changed. Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a bit of change in Archangel's character. And again, there's a little bit of a shift in the Summers family dynamic, but it's not a great deal. Yeah. Well, and we kind of knew just in retrospect that that was going to be the case uh, with this, that the, the payoff isn't as great as as we had hoped. That's kind of a comment that a lot of people in the comments uh, that we talked about in the first one as well were mentioning that, you know, it's only okay or some people loved it and I don't know. I think it really depends on where you were at with your X-Men knowledge and history, perhaps. Because if you went into this not knowing anything about the summer's history, uh, then maybe this is a a completely different story than you who have been following X-Men for a long, long time and and are picking up on the, the clues that they're dropping it might just be because it's coming from a different perspective like that. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, maybe maybe there's a generational gap at, at work here. But, you know, I, I was following, I thought I was following things as they went along. But I mean, if you're going to drop all these clues, you kind of got to expect someone to notice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, X-Force Epic Collection Volume 2 also includes this special Strife's Strike File special issue. Did any of you take a look at this? I did. It's not like, you know, nothing you really got to go into like a full review over. I just kind of wanted to point some things out. It's like, so it's basically a handbook, um, but it's through uh, the point of view of Strife. So like it, it actually does count as like something that's in continuity. Like these are act, Strife's actual files he had on people and Xavier is kind of examining the disc before he gets rid of it. And I uh, just wanted to point out that they have the character Holocaust in here and he did not debut uh, for a couple more years. He, not until the age of apocalypse. And it appears from what they wrote here, or, you know, quote unquote, what Strife wrote here, talking about him and the upstarts and destroying Sentinels. And it's like, wait, what? Because that never really happened. And when we actually do see the character... Um, he's completely different. So I thought that was a like kind of, u- of a unique little uh, oddity. And then I also wanted to point out that I think uh, just based on what they're saying here, it seems like Games Master and uh, the Upstarts were intended to be a lot more important than they eventually became. <laughs> it mm-hmm. seemed like they were going to be basing a lot of uh, stories around uh, those guys, and it just never took off for whatever reason. There's also the, the page dealing with the character Threnody. Yep. And this was technically her first appearance as well she also doesn't appear for several months down the road and eventually becomes a supporting cast member of x-man the the age of apocalypse spin-off comic i think her character had they had a lot of plans for her too that never really came into fruition yeah i I vividly Um, remember her first appearance too because that was back when i only had like 12 comics to my name so like i I reread the same stuff a lot and yeah she was a she was a weird character very very specific to the 90s i don't think she ever showed up anywhere else so i tried reading through all of these entries okay and it's difficult tried is you know not encouraging (laughs) <laughs> oh man. So it's it's so difficult because they're all written 
by Strife. So they're all in Strife's voice. And it is... Okay, I, I have to read you some of these because it's just ridiculous. Absolutely Bring ridiculous. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to read a little section from Archangel's entry. And, and they're all like this, okay? I hold the shiny silver quarter. It catches the devil's light just so. It teases and tantalizes you with the hint of treasures to come. You take it in your cold, hard fingers. I show you where to toss it. Apocalypse is the playing field. You smile. It's like, it's all nonsense. <laughs> it's all nonsense. Jake couldn't have said it better himself. <laughs> it's, 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 it's basically bad high school poetry, isn't it? Um, because as you say, it's written by this incredibly constipated individual who manages to not say anything. I mean, I'm looking at the one for Ilyana here, and I think we can all do this as party pieces. Child of innocence, <laughs> demon of hate, smiling girl in a field, frenzied teen in a war zone, a flower in her fingers, a sword in her hand, Ilyana Rasputin, dark child magic, little girl, mutant sorceress. I mean, you know, what, <laughs> Rus Russian nesting doll. I mean, what? It's just, it's, it's like, what the hell are you saying? And it would maybe be okay if it actually said something, but it, it on the whole doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm, boy, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of uh, glad that Professor X deletes the whole thing at the end. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that, that should have been our sign to burn every copy. But that's yeah, really number, why he burned it. You didn't want Number one, yeah, it was meant to introduce some characters that were going to be seen down the road. So it was it was meant to kind of be a giant preview thing, and we should we should recognize that that it was yeah seeding sure, yeah. some of the stuff to come. So some of the some of the more at the time some more excitement would have come from the fact that you were seeing these characters. Although some of them immediately raised the mind as being problematic because Syena Blaze in the Upstart. You know, it talks about how if she uses her power too much, it could destroy the Earth. And you just think, what kind of long-term feasibility is there for a character like that? Um, the, although I will say the one thing is, I'm ashamed for not thinking this sooner. The Scarlet Witch Quicksilver entry remarks on that with their power set, they could take over the world. They just kind of don't want to. And I'm like, at the time, I was like, oh, holy. well, but I was like, holy buckets. I suddenly realized that with their power set, they probably could take over the world. So, so that was the one bit of learning that I did from this. But yeah. Well, I'm glad you learned something. <laughs> <laughs> is that one more thing than you did? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, there you go. Now, this is not going to be in the X-Men collection of of Extinction Agenda, is it? I think it's No, just it's not. Okay. You know, the, the fact that they try to include everything with all the little extras and stuff, it's, you know, it belongs here. It's It fits, I guess. It's... So the trading cards that got bagged with all of these issues of Executioner Songs were called strike, strike Files, and they were all images from this book, and they were all also excerpts from all of the entries in this book. So it's all kind of repeated material. So if um, you really, really like those, you could buy... <laughs> 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 if, if you got right. all if you got all the trading cards you could hear get bigger trading cards yep. <laughs> <laughs> well there we go you know actually talking about the strife strike file might be the highlight of this episode for me <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, but I want to thank you, all three of you, for being a part of this. It's not all any, uh, you know. It's not every day that we get to uh, have a roundtable discussion tackling a big crossover like this, and it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was awesome. No, thank you all for putting up with me. I do appreciate it. I, uh, and I to be clear, I understand why people like this, and and I'm not you know denigrating the reasons why you might like it. Um, I think we just kind of sift through what's there and not there. No, and I'm happy to have difference of opinions because that makes for a good conversation. If we were all just gushing over it, it wouldn't have the same sort of flavor. Um, yeah. Or if we were all ragging on it, it wouldn't have the same flavor as well. It's it's a it's a good balance that uh, that we each bring to the table. So yeah, thanks everybody for your own perspectives. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I think what we're going to do now is say goodbye to Jared and Lars, and James and I are going to continue the discussion uh, with a couple more issues. So uh, thanks again, uh, okay. Lars from Wizard Magazine and Jared from <laughs> wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nowhere in particular. but. <laughs> <laughs> and I also crank out a, a books on Doctor Who, uh, particularly A History and About Time, which are available on an Amazon near you. Right, yeah, check that out. Okay, so I think we just need to keep on going. Uh, like I said at the beginning, this epic collection, X-Force epic collection, has two more issues that don't relate to Executioner's Song. They just needed to, you know, fill out the page count a little bit. And it actually fits as a nice epilogue to the story and a good stopping point for this epic collection. And I do want to mention also that the X-Men epic collection also has... A, a, a volume dedicated to Executioner's Song, and they include several extra issues of X-Men. Uh, so those two books aren't identical. If you have both the Executioner's Song, X-Force, and X-Men volumes, you kind of actually have to get both of them, even though it's a lot of double dipping, because there's content that hasn't been reprinted in both of those books. Yeah. In my opinion, I think it's a little bit better with this one than it is like Maximum Carnage because um, this is a 12-part yeah. crossover where there's, you know, there's a lot more room to add some other stuff to, you know, differentiate them a bit. But yeah. Very true. Yeah, Maximum Carnage is 16 parts. So you only get like one or two issues. Yeah, like to one graphic novel or annual or something that <laughs> that yeah. separates it from the other ones. But definitely. Anyways, <laughs> well, let's talk about this New Warriors number thirty-one. At first, I was like, "Why are we? Ha why do we have an issue of New Warriors in here?" But it actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I kind of had the same reaction. I did a double take here because um, we'll get to X Force nineteen. Um, I remember having that one, but I'm like, wait a minute. Aren't X-Force still in jail at this point in time? And then I'm reading right. through the issue. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, Xavier gave uh, Warpath and Cannonball uh, permission to leave temporarily. So, uh, <laughs> so that, generous that, that, of him. Yeah, that cleared that up. And I, and I figured, I'm like, wait a minute. Nicias is writing both of these comics. Like, there's he, he couldn't have let something like that slip. <laughs> so, right, yeah. Right. Uh, New Warriors number 31. Okay, so again, Nicias is writing. Um, we have Derek Robertson on art. And uh, he's uh, he's already coming into his own by this point. I really enjoy yeah, his art. Totally, and, uh, me too. For something that wasn't like one of marvel's best selling titles new warriors always had like really good artists on that book for some reason like, <laughs> like very, very solid too like not a lot of fill-ins and but anyways so xavier lets uh, warpath and cannonball leave um the reason for doing that 
is because in addition to a fire star of the New Warriors, Cannonball and Warpath are traveling to this place called Nova Roma. Um, and this is uh, kind of tying back to some old uh, New Mutants uh, subplots from, you know, at this point, those plots would have been eight, ten years old at this point. Yeah. Nova Roma is introduced in like the within the first dozen issues of yeah. New Mutants at the very beginning. Yep. And then uh, we that's how we get Magma, um, the, the, the mutant Magma, who was a member of the New Mutants. She left that team a, a while ago. You know, she was never part of like the X-Force shakeup. But uh, in addition to being members of the New Mutants, um, everybody involved here, Cannonball, Warpath, Firestar, Magma, uh, they were all uh, either members of the Hellions or they were, um, you know, like feuding with them as New Mutants. So uh, the Hellions have died. Um, they were killed in an issue of Uncanny X-Men. It was like the very first issue with um, the big uh, blue and gold team shake up there. They were killed by Sentinels. So they have to tell Magma that because those were her friends. Yeah, it turns out that, uh, you know, when they go down there, she's with this Hellion called Empath. And uh, Empath, his deal is that he's kind of like a mind control uh, type guy. And it's, it was always hint, like uh, hinted at that. Um, he was possibly mind controlling uh, magma, like maybe she wasn't really like in love with this guy or or, or whatnot. And yeah, it was uh, some some kind of weird undertones there with that that character, but that kind of plays into this story. And um, this is where things get really complicated <laughs> complicated for me. Yeah, Curtis, do you remember like what uh, Nova Roma was originally supposed to be? Yeah, so Nova Roma is a land out of time. It's just this small little community that has existed since ancient Roman times, but because it never had any connection with the rest of the world or any influence, it just yep. stayed Roman to, to modern day. And, and that's where Amara was born and raised. And it's in Brazil too, right? Like it's yeah. supposed to be like in the Amazon jungle. Yeah. So, yes. so that's kind of uh, complicated enough. And like they, they would have been fine just to leave it there in my opinion. But it turns out <laughs> that this whole Nova Roma thing was actually a mind control experiment of uh, the villain Celine. Celine is yeah. like a like a centuries old, or actually probably even more than centuries old mutant, uh, kind of like a sorcerer. She was the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club for a while, so it wasn't really this ancient Roman colony that <laughs> was left there. And um, apparently Empath knew about that and he kept up the lie as Celine's spell uh, faded, you know, through his mind control powers. And then they reveal that um, Magma, who was called Amara Aquila, she was really a British uh, citizen called Alison Crestmere, who I don't know if there was like a voyage there or something and she happened to get caught. Like, So it, it wasn't really like an ancient Roman city. Now it's apparently Celine's experiment where all these people were held prisoner there to pretend to be an ancient Roman city in Brazil. I thought that, <laughs> that this kind of needlessly complicated things. And I'm, I'm not sure Absolutely. exactly where, where Marvel stands on this now. I think they may have, I, I think they may have just kind of put this to the side and said, yeah, we're not doing Nova Roma stories anymore <laughs> because Magma hardly ever shows up again after this. So, so, so here's my issue with this huge retcon. I am not a fan of this retcon, even though if you listen to my early new mutants episodes, I was not a fan of the Nova Roma stories at all. But it's so much more interesting to have a, a land out of time, I think, than just a mind wipe city. Yeah. And first of all, reading this issue now, today, for the first time, all I could think of was WandaVision, because that's, <laughs> that's exactly true. the plot of WandaVision, uh, which I loved. So I thought that was a great show. But yeah, taking away Amara's whole character, changing her personality and totally wiping that slate clean 
is a disservice to to everything that the, the creators before had uh, mm-hmm. had developed with her character. And like I liked her character. I think it was really great. And it doesn't make sense to me that she would be taken out of Nova Roma and still retain her Amara personality, her thoughts, her mind, um, all of that for years on the New Mutants. Wouldn't wouldn't uh, I mean? Unless Celine's grasp is that great, that that's she what can I was keep thinking. Going. That, yeah, because I don't think she remember. Does she remember like who she was before, or does she just like know that she was somebody different before? I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and like the thing here, I don't think anybody was like a huge Nova Roma fan, right? Like right. I, I, like yeah. even like Claremont kind of ditches that pretty quick, yeah. even though he keeps Magma on the team. And um, this is a thing like in comics, I know that um, it, this is kind of like a Roy Thomas trope where, where it's almost like if there's a story that you don't like, sometimes it's better just to ignore it than to go back and try to fix it and do something that's even more insanely complicated. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like, I almost feel like here you get to the point where it's like magma is just so muddled right now that it's like, she's almost unusable as a character, which is, you know, I think why she completely disappears for a couple decades. after this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. A couple things I did like about this issue though, is exploring empath as a character because the Hellions were his friends too. They they yeah. go to tell Amara about the Hellions, but you know, Empath is still he's in grief too and acting out. And this is why I think it's so similar to WandaVision is because that's Wanda's whole whole thing is that she was controlling this town as a result of not being able to process her own grief or her own PTSD yeah. or whatever you want to call it. And I think um Empath is doing the same thing here. And so I liked that exploration of his character, even though it didn't sit well, how they kind of retcon the story. I know a lot of people give the character flack too. Like there's, you know, saying like there's like rape undertones to him or whatever, you know, making people do things that they don't want to do. I, you know, I kind of get it, but like they also, they show here that like maybe it's something that he can't really turn on and off. And like, he does kind of seem to show a little bit of a, you know, like he he regrets like doing some of the things uh, that he's done, you know, because that that's why like these young mutants are either in the new mutants or the hellions they don't know how to control their powers and you know they need to get better so th- that that adds more uh depth to his character to where he's not just kind of like a one note mm-hmm. and i don't know much about firestar but i i liked this kind of a change for her as well and i she gets a new costume and i would have liked to see her kind of team up more with x-force but uh, she sticks with the new yeah. mutants I think she comes back during the Child's Play crossover. There's another crossover between uh, New Warriors and X-Force in a few years, or not in like one year, actually. So oh, okay. I'm sure she's there. But yeah, there's some uh, there's some New Warriors subplots here, too. Um, wasn't going to go over those just because no. you know, it's kind of completely divorced from you know the X-Force story. But they included them just in case if you want to go. Yeah, and they it. don't really make much sense if you don't know the context. Yeah. So. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think we'll stick, it, we'll stick straight with uh, X-Force. I only bring up the new costume because... The next issue of X-Force, all of our team gets new costumes as well. So oh, yeah. it kind of is like a little bit of a through line. Uh, but let's go on to X-Force number 19. And it's called The Open Hand, The Closed Fist. And like I said before, this serves as an epilogue to X-Force's uh, involvement in Executioner Song. Uh, they're still being held captive they're not in their jail cells anymore, but they kind of can't leave the premises of the expansion. But they're they're doing stuff in the danger room. I, I really like the comment that they make that uh, they show a big picture of Shatterstar, Richter, and Feral, and he says they are 
three mutants who never had the opportunity to learn under Xavier's tutelage. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. This this is kind of the beginning of seeing an expanse of teams that reaches beyond Xavier's Institute. And like X right. Factor is in, in the same boat at this time. Uh, when they did the huge revamp with X-Force and X-Factor, X-Factor ha- is a government agency. They're also not under the influence of Xavier. So it's uh, it's neat to see that um, they're, they're referencing that, and we're going to see kind of the effects of, um, like, how Cannonball reconciles that, I guess, if, in a way. Because he has to make a decision for his team of whether or not they stay because Xavier asked them to or, or, or if they just go. It's a great epilogue to Executioner's yeah. Song. You know, I, I, I think Executioner's Song is a, a good cable story, and it's a great Cannonball story uh, because this is where he grows up. You know, yeah. this is his breakout moment. He has a discussion with uh, Xavier on uh, what exactly is X-Force's role going to be without Cable. You know, they're without Cable again. He came back briefly for uh, the Executioner Song crossover, but now they're, you know, a ship without a rudder again. Uh, So, you know, they're thinking about, you know, maybe staying on with Xavier. Cannonball has some bad blood, though. He talks about how, you know, Xavier left the New Mutants in uh, Magneto's control, you know, when Xavier had to leave for a while. And, you know, that was kind of hypocrisy on uh, Xavier's part, you know, now that he's telling uh, Cannonball that, you know, they can't be with Cable because Cable's like a villain or something. And he's like, come on, man. So, (laughs) yeah, it's just the what's the what's the phrase? The pot calling the kettle black. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) uh, Speaking of speaking of phrases, they have another. Uh, kind of phrase metaphor or whatever here uh the open hand or the closed fist so that yeah. you know there's like a bird or something and you know it's uh are you gonna hit it with the closed fist and he says something like uh you know that it can protect it as well and he holds it or something and the bird's still alive in his hand so the mouse I, or mouse yeah i forgot yeah <laughs> kind of cheesy but, but then uh, oh g- glad you pointed out that out because now i remember feral i think eats the mouse. yeah <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> xavier is like okay it's like you know you made your case you know you're 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 a leader now you know you've there's nothing really more i can teach you so uh he lets the team go off to choose their own fate warpath and siren meanwhile they're downloading some information from xavier's mansion uh without his knowledge well apparently without his knowledge you know they, yeah. they think xavier doesn't know but xavier does know <laughs> so that that's kind of cool i like that little touch there and he's like oh sam by the way and sam's like yeah he's like I know that you're stealing from me. And he's like, well, I guess, uh, you know, we're going to take it anyway. He's like, okay, this is the path you chose. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. the team, the team teleports away with, uh, Lila Cheney. I don't think we talked about Lila yet. Um, she was kind of hanging around X-Force at this time. She's like an intergalactic, uh, teleporter mutant, um, kind of like a pop star, like Dazzler. Um, and she used to date Sam, AKA cannonball. So they go off with her to another adventure. And uh, before they do that, Boomer gets them some amazing new costumes from this uh, Shi'ar alien costume creation device that they have hanging out in the mansion. I just want to say that these are like my favorite looks for uh, X-Force. Like I love the costume designs here way better than the original like Liefeld designs that they were still wearing up to this point. They right. just, uh, th- th- this is like when I picture X-Force, like this is my X-Force, like that panel oh, okay. all together at the end there. <laughs> so it's a great issue. I, 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 I like this issue a lot. It's a perfect kind of downtime issue to, to catch up on some loose ends and send the characters off to do something else. Yeah, it's true. It's all dialogue. It's all talking, but it's really, really well written. I, I, I enjoyed all of the conversations that go through here because they all had a purpose. I, I liked discovering or learning more about what Roberto was going through and, uh, and him dealing with 
just the fact that he doesn't know where he belongs and especially the scene with Xavier and and Siren when Siren says you don't understand professor I wanted to be with people here who were like me people who were dead inside as well people who are too wounded and too angry to be with anyone else and it's like yeah that's that's X-Force yep. that's where we're at people who have been disillusioned people who have been hurt and mistreated and it's so different than X-Men, and especially when you think about X-Men in the 1960s, like the very start of it, we have privileged children or teenagers who are banding together under Xavier, but that's not who these this team of X-Force is at all. And that's why they don't want to stand for the same sort of ideals that Xavier stands for. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely it's uh, it, it makes you kind of feel like, you know, there's going to be th- this book has a reason to exist without Cable. Like these guys yeah. are going to be doing their own thing. So. Yeah, it's a great starting point for this team, a great new direction. It feels natural. And maybe this is sort of some of the stuff we should have talked about with the other two earlier in this issue about the consequences or the payoff, maybe if we had talked about this issue as well, like here is some of natural uh, progression for these characters in a good way. Yeah. I think all, too, like all, all throughout the 90s, almost every crossover had like a slam dunk, like epilogue issue. Like that was just like a trademark for 90s crossovers where they had these like uh, these really quiet, you know, just catch up with the characters type issues. And, uh, yeah. you know, there's there's a really good one, too, with um, Uncanny X-Men where Xavier, um, after this crossover, he's, he can still walk after the techno virus was like purged from him, but it's only going to be temporary. And I think he goes like roller skating with Jubilee or something before yes, he finally that's right. becomes crippled again. And like, oh man, like that's such a, that's such a good issue. <laughs> yeah. That one, I don't even know if that one is in the, the, X-Men I don't think it collection. is. No, yeah. which is weird because that, that would, that would really fit like, you know, to top it off, but I guess they'll start whatever the next volume is with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yep. Very happy with this, this one issue. It makes me excited to read because I was never an X-Force reader. So it makes me really excited to see where these these characters are going. I love Cannonball here. You, you look at him in the early issues and he's he's scared, he's immature, he's not confident. And to see where he gets to and where he becomes uh, in X-Force as the team leader is very, very cool. So I'd like to see where Nicieza takes him next. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully we'll get some, uh, some of those volumes soon. I know the next couple of X-Forces we're getting are you know, a few years away from this, but... Yeah, this yeah. uh this 93 94 period that's uh that's a sweet spot for me. I I I love that time. Yeah. Well, there we go. Uh, there are a couple of bonus features in this epic collection, mostly covers to other trade paperbacks. Uh, we get, like I said, the Strife Files cards are all reprinted in here. A big article on Executioner Song. There's not really a whole lot of meat to to this to the the bonus features, but I do want to point out one picture from the Marvel swimsuit special. It's a parody ad for it says 401 Zip Your Zipper. And there's a ridiculous picture of Cable drawn by <laughs> Mark Pacella, who did a couple of issues of X-Force after Rob Liefeld left. And it's like, 
they knew exactly all of the you know they they yeah they're, they're just making fun of themselves here with the huge <laughs> chest and the tiny head and the massive gun with like the, <laughs> the flashlight it's, strapped to yeah. it and it's funny because those um those mark pasella issues we reviewed those in our first uh x-force episode and they were yeah. definitely a little uh little sketchy <laughs> here it's like I, like i find it uh it's i find it kind of interesting that they got like him to like make fun of his own you know prior work here because right cable's head <laughs> think of like your thumbnail it's literally the size of your thumbnail like if your body <laughs> yeah. just the same size. <laughs> it's so funny and like yeah. the, the feet look like horse hoofs and like he's got this massive nuclear missile strapped to his back it reminds me of like tank girl or something like that it's just yeah. it's great it's so great um, my favorite <laughs> feature in the back here <laughs> oh boy okay well thanks james for jumping back in and talking x-force with me it's uh, it's been a pleasure I don't know. Eventually, I guess we'll have to tackle those later X-Force volumes before because there's no sign at this point, at this time of recording, there's no sign of Marvel wanting to continue with the rest of the, the 90s X-Force. I mean, I know they'll get to it eventually, but um, they're not coming yeah. anytime soon. We'll see. I know whatever the next volume coming out is, I think like either volume six or seven or something like that. That was supposed to come out like pre-COVID times or like yeah. right around the time COVID. <laughs> and then it got bumped delay. back like a year and then it got bumped back to like again. So this is like the longest delayed epic ever. And I think it's finally coming <laughs> out like next month. So I'm, I'm excited to, to check into that one too. Yeah. And they've already scheduled the follow-up as well. And then they'll have to, I, I'm not exactly sure how they're going to handle X-Force with those in the middle issues because it ties so heavily with cable, yep. but we'll see. Okay, everybody, thanks for checking us out. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube, and you can join my Facebook page where we talk about Epic Collections all day, every day. You just have to search for Epic Collections on Facebook or search for Epic Marvel Podcast on your favorite social media platform. Uh, Except TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. (laughs) I'm not cool enough. Uh, Okay, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.